This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A former presidential candidate and current U.S. senator is about to join auto workers on that picket line. The lead starts right now. Day one on strike as auto workers push for higher pay and better benefits. Soon a rally to support their demands with Senator Bernie Sanders joining their fight. 32 of Donald Trump's old Twitter DMs turned over to the special counsel and now in the hands of Jack Smith as his federal investigation digs into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What was so damning in those messages? Plus, deliberating the fate of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, already suspended, facing impeachment by his fellow Republicans, accused of abuse of power and bribery. So the big question, will state senators vote to remove him from office? That decision could come down literally at any moment. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our national lead. For the first time in U.S. history, union workers are on strike against all three of America's big three automakers all at the same time. The UAW strike is spread across three plants right now, one from each of the big three. It's a GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri, a Ford truck plant in Wayne, Michigan, and a Stellantis assembly complex in Toledo, Ohio. Stellantis owns Dodge, Jeep, and Chrysler, among others. In total, more than 12,000 workers have walked off the job. Right now, that's about 9% of UAW's 145,000 members. But the union warns more will go on strike if demands are not met. This is just a taste of what could come, they say. So what do auto workers want? They want a 40% pay increase over a four-year contract. They want cost-of-living pay increases restored. They want a four-day work week. And they want limits on part-time workers and forced overtime. So far, the CEOs at the automakers have scoffed at the workers' demands. Ford CEO Jim Farley said the company simply cannot afford these demands. But all three automakers, it has been noted, have reported record or near-record profits and... The CEOs themselves have seen multi-million dollar pay raises with their salaries climbing up to 40% over the last few years. Today, President Biden spoke from the White House supporting workers and their demands, but he did stop short of explicitly endorsing the strike. Let's be clear. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. A Michigan lawmaker who was on today's picket line will join me in just a second, but our coverage is going to start 
with CNN's Gabe Cohen. Gabe, you're at the Toledo, Ohio Stellantis plant where more than 5,000 Stellantis workers are on strike. That's the largest group of striking workers of the three plants. Just minutes ago, the UAW, the union, said negotiators are going to return to the bargaining table tomorrow. What do we know about that? Well, look, Sean, that was the message from the head of the union, Sean Fain. That's what he told me early this morning on a picket line. Uh, sorry about the noise. On a picket line in Michigan, uh, he told me that they would not be bargaining today, that really today was about these rallies and these members, that they would not be bargaining again until Saturday. Uh, although we now understand the union has sent a counter offer to all three of the automakers and are now awaiting a response. And until that deal is reached, and it could be some time, this is what it's going to look like outside of this massive Stellantis plant. You can see about a dozen workers at each one of these gates, and they stretch all the way down this road. If you look on the other side of where I'm standing, you can see additional lines at each and every gate. Uh, many of the other workers who aren't here are out at the local union headquarters signing up right now for strike pay, Jay. Jake. Uh, they're going to be getting $100 a day uh, for the foreseeable future, and that's money from the union because they're not making a salary, and they have basically shut down operation here. Uh, we spoke with the head of the union, the local union here, about their frustrations. Uh, take a listen. One thing that drives us crazy is we went through bankruptcy with Barack Obama back in 2008 and 2000, in, in the beginning of 2009. And we were asked, we were told by the president we had to give up huge concessions for them to get the government support to turn their companies around. We did that. And we haven't been, it hasn't been reversed. Back in 2000, when we came out of bankruptcy, our starting pay at Jeep was $15.78. 14 years later, it's $15.78. There's something wrong with that. And Jake, I can tell you, every worker I've spoken to today has told me uh, they're ready for the long haul. They're prepared for a strike. They, they were told to save up money that this could be coming. And they basically shut down operation at this huge complex where uh, they make many of the Jeeps that you, family, friends likely drive. For example, the Wrangler, uh, many of those cars parked just sitting here as these picket lines are growing. Jake? Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. So what exactly do automakers want here? How is the strike going to affect the rest of us? Rahel Solomon's here to break it down. Uh, Rahel, what are the uh, striking workers hoping to achieve here? Uh, well, Jake, you know, more money. I mean, that's the big thing here. There are some other demands, some of which you just mentioned. Uh, one, one that we hear a lot about is the 32-hour, four-day work week. Jake, I can tell you based on conversations I've had today with different industry analysts that that is not expected. There's not a lot of confidence that that issue of a four-day work week is going to make it across the finish line. But this issue of the 40% pay raise, that is going to be a huge issue. Now, for the automakers part, they say, look, we can offer you, Ford and GM say that they can offer a 20% raise during the life of the contract, and Stellantis is offering 17.5. But again, the UAW asking for 40% over four years. And just to provide a bit of a snapshot, Jacob, where we're starting from, on average, the average UAW worker right now at one of those big three plants is making about 32 32 per hour. But that really depends on the type of worker. If you are part-time, if you're temporary, that number could be a lot closer to $15 to $18 per hour. And Jake, pay, as I said, a really big issue here 
But it's not just the pay of the workers that we're hearing a lot about. It's the pay of the executives, as you just pointed out. So uh, the top three executives at the top three uh, automakers making between 20 and 30 million dollars. And if you'll notice, that is up to a 40 percent increase. So you're seeing a bit of a theme there, 40 percent increase over the last four years for these executives and the UAW workers now asking for a 40 percent pay raise. Now, Jacob, it feels like there have been more strikes than usual, that there has been an uptick in strikes. You're right. It's, it's not your imagination. Art Wheaton from Cornell told me there are a few factors driving this increased strike activity, inflation, a big part of it, but also the tighter labor market that workers still feel like they have the upper hand. And so they're exercising that because they think now is a really good time to get the things that they say that they deserve. What's the impact on consumers potentially? And what does this mean for the automakers from a financial standpoint? Yeah, so for the consumers, anyone who has tried to buy a car, Jake, over the last few years fully understands prices have been high. So perhaps, depending on how long this lasts, we could see more of that. So watch that space. In terms of the financial impact of these companies, Jake, look, I have been asking analysts who know these industries, who know these companies and their financials, what would the impact be financially? How damaging could it be to them? And I have heard everything from there is no way these companies could uh, give into these demands, meet these demands as they are now without having to raise prices for $5,000 per car. But I've also heard others say, look, it ultimately depends on how this turns out. Also ultimately depends on what the automakers do in response to try to minimize. So it's early days, a lot of scenarios. The economic impact will ultimately depend on how long this lasts. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Let's bring in Michigan Democratic Representative Alyssa Slotkin. Congresswoman, we know both sides are set to meet again tomorrow. More than 3,000 workers are striking at Ford's truck plant in your state. Ford CEO Jim Farley told CNN that the company cannot afford the union's demands, but the UAW president, Sean Fain, said Farley's claims are a joke. How do you see this getting resolved? Well, I mean, I think it's like any other negotiation, right? We're really glad that the parties are coming, to, you know, together. We're really glad that right now it looks like everyone's bargaining in good faith. Um, they're coming back to the table, even though we had strike activity today. And we just expect them to do that push and pull like any negotiation until they figure it out. And we want them to do that as quickly as possible, right? No one wants this to go on longer than it has to. Um, but I think certainly today was a, you know, a different moment of inflection for these, this conversation because, you know, I was down there today um, in front of the Ford plant and, you know, the energy is really, the workers have the energy. They're ready for this. The union, uh, they're asking for several things, including a 40% pay raise over four years, a four day work week. Um, what do you think of these demands? Well, look, I mean, I think I used to do, you know, negotiations on international agreements in my former life in the national security world. And you'd prepare and you'd, you know, bring your demands to the other side and you would work it out. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not in those negotiations. I don't know what each side has sort of set as their internal red lines. And I know that no negotiation will be perfect for either side. Um, so we're, we're, to me, you know, the, the only Sean Fain in the UAW and the folks who are going to vote on that agreement are going to know what the right sweet spot is. In the meantime, the stage was set for this negotiation, uh, frankly, months ago, right? Because you have the companies who are making record profits. You have every employer in the country looking for employees, attracting employees, raising wages and benefits because they need those employees to come to them. Um, in that scenario, it, it's understandable why anyone in Sean Fain's position would be pushing for a strong deal. 
We cannot ignore the potential political impact. Obviously, this could impact the economy. Obviously, this is happening under President Biden's watch. The first time in history there's been a strike against all three of the big three automakers at the same time. Uh, for you two uh, running uh, for the U.S. Senate in Michigan, uh, how worried are you that this is going to hurt Democrats? You know, I'll be honest. I mean, I was down in front of the plant today. We went to another location where UAW hospital workers are, are um, you know, striking. And I didn't hear one person on the line actually talking about politics. I didn't hear one person say Joe Biden this or Donald Trump that. They literally were just like, I can't pay my rent. Right. I can't afford to rent a place or um, I started here 20 years ago and the people who are coming in today have no shot of getting, you know, the position that I've gotten. I, I just it's just not on the tip of people's tongue right now who are actually in the middle of this. Um, and for me, it's not a it's not a political calculation. I am a firm believer that in the United States of America, we are safer and better off when we have a strong middle class and that everyone should be able to get into the middle class and stay in. And that's what people on the line are asking about. How can I live a secure life financially? So I, I, I get it that, you know, people want to ask about politics. It's just not the conversation going on on the ground here. I want to turn to the final trial in the 2020 plot to kidnap your governor, uh, Democrat uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Three men were acquitted in this final trial today of all charges. They were not considered to be the ringleaders of the plot. These men had done some of the surveillance of Whitmer's home. Two of them testified in their own defense, saying they had no idea how serious and dangerous this plot was. So of the 14 men who were prosecuted in the plot, nine were convicted, five were acquitted. Uh, What's your reaction to the final outcome? Well, first of all, I think it's really important that we as a a state and as a country have gone through this process, right? If you threaten violence, you organize, you plot, you surveil, you come up with this whole scheme to do this, to hurt somebody else, you should be held accountable. So I think it's it's just been an important process for us to go through. And then, you know, there's courts of law. You got to be able to prove your evidence in courts of law. And I think, you know, just by the numbers you just laid out, we've had some justice here and that's all we can ask for. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin uh, of Michigan, happy Rosh Hashanah to you. Thank you. We're standing by for a rally to begin in support of union workers. CNN is there. Senator Bernie Sanders is supposed to be there. Keep it here to see how that event plays out. Plus, breaking right now, uh, prosecutors with the special counsel's office out with new allegations about Donald Trump. That's next. We have some breaking news for you now on the special counsel's 2020 election subversion case against former President Donald Trump. The Justice Department prosecutors are making some new allegations this afternoon about Trump's public statements. Let's get straight to CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. Jessica? Yeah, Jake, I mean, the prosecutors here are saying quite simply that Donald Trump's public statements have led to the intimidation and harassment of witnesses. Now, this is all contained in an opinion that was just released from the judge overseeing the D.C. case, Judge Tanya Chutkin. This all relates to prosecutors wanting to file a motion asking Judge Chutkin to do something about the former president's 
comments and supposed intimidation and threats against these witnesses. We don't know exactly what, but Judge Chutkin has ruled here today that all of the witnesses mentioned as having received some of this intimidation, any of these threats, their names can continue to be uh, redacted away from public view. One of the things she says is that all of these individuals who are mentioned by the prosecutors, they have already experienced harassment and threats due to publication of their information. And the possibility of that happening again risks witness intimidation, including of other witnesses not identified in this motion. So, you know, there's a few holes in this opinion. We're not getting all of the details. But what we do know is that Donald Trump has repeatedly continued to speak out, tweet say things about people involved in that D.C. election case, the federal case going on right here in Washington. And now prosecutors are saying that maybe some of the people who he's talked about, they have received threats, they have been intimidated, and now prosecutors are asking the judge to make some kind of decision here regarding those threats. So, Jake, I mean, it's, it's um, notable here that prosecutors are saying, you know, Donald Trump's words over the past several weeks, even though the judge in this case has told him not to make any public statements about this case, those words, not only has he made uh, those comments, but they have affected numerous witnesses as we're getting a look at here. We don't know exactly who, and we don't know exactly what statements have led to those intimidation and, and threats, but uh, significant news and um, accusations coming from the prosecutor's office. Interesting. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in Tom Dupree. He was a principal deputy assistant attorney general for the George W. Bush administration. Tom, what do you, what do you make of this, uh, this filing? Well, first, it doesn't surprise me that that's the result on witnesses. I mean, the president has been outspoken. He has attacked judges, witnesses, everyone under the sun uh, through his public statements and social media. What will be interesting here, Jake, is what the judge does about it. We've seen so far from the way she runs her courtroom is she is committed to preserving the integrity of the judicial process. She wants to make sure the jury pool stays protected. She wants to make sure witnesses stay protected. I would expect she'll take this very seriously and that she may either admonish the president, she may instruct his lawyers to direct their client to knock it off. Um, I mean, in extreme cases, she can impose things like a gag order. She could even do things like revoke bail. So she has a menu of options open to her, and I suspect she'll start at the lower end to see if that will coerce his compliance and then gradually work her way up if that doesn't work. You know, what's so interesting about this is um, this comes right after uh, Senator Mitt Romney uh, announced he's not running for re-election. And in an excerpt of his book about Romney that was published in The Atlantic, uh, McKay Coppins has a section where Romney is recalling members of the House and Senate saying they're not going to vote to impeach or to convict Donald Trump after the insurrection uh, because they are afraid of what will happen to them or their families. In other words, intimidation from Trump works. Well, that may be the lesson that he's drawn from this. I mean, in the past, he's been very aggressive uh, going after everyone, political enemies, the media, citizens, uh, through these comments. They work. They can cause people to change their behavior. They can silence people. But it's a different world now when you're in court. In other words, it's one thing to make those comments in the context of a political campaign or the political fray. It's another thing to make it when you are a criminal defendant and you are making comments about witnesses who are poised to testify against you. Uh, Judge uh, Chutkin previously said any inflammatory statements could speed up the trial as well. You think that she might do that as well? Absolutely. I mean, if she thinks that there are witnesses out there who are getting scared or intimidated from testifying because of these comments, she may say, look, we need to move this thing up. Let's move it up a few months. So he, he's, it's a risky business. I mean, he's playing with fire to some extent making these comments because I don't think this is a judge who's going to stand for a lot of this stuff. Some other news today in the same case, special counsel Jack Smith uh, sliding into Donald Trump's DMs, as it were, after a tug of war uh, the company Twitter, uh, now, uh, now known as X, 
reluctantly gave the Justice Department at least 32 uh, direct messages from Donald Trump's account. The warrant sought information from October 2020 through January 2021, asking for, quote, the content of all direct messages sent from, received by, stored in draft form, in or otherwise associated with Trump's account. Um, explain this to us. I mean, that seems like a rather extreme thing to, to, for a judge to order the Justice Department to do. Did the judge have to look and say, oh, that's, that merits handing over? I mean, how does that work? Well, sure. What will often happen is, in this case, the social media platform might object and say, look, we've got this request to subpoena. And the judge the said that they did. Right. I mean, Elon Musk did not want to turn it over. And, and they fought it. They right. fought it. The judge said you have to turn it over because there might be relevant evidence in there. And look, the significance here, Jake, is that, as we know, the president typically does not use email. Email is often one of the most effective pieces of evidence prosecutors can use in proving a case. It wasn't going to be in play, apparently, in this case. The existence of these direct messages does suggest that former President Trump was communicating in an email-like way with people, sending direct messages to individuals. We don't know what they say, but at least it could be a game changer if there's material in that collection of DMs that the prosecutors can use to try to prove the president's intent or the president's state of knowledge. Yeah, or draft DMs, it also suggested. Um, Trump was asked uh, this week by NBC about the possibility of pardoning himself uh, if he gets elected president again. Take a listen. Mr. President, if you were reelected, would you pardon yourself? I could have pardoned myself. Do you know what? I was given an option to pardon myself. I could have pardoned myself when I left. He was not facing any criminal charges um, when he left office. Um, but if he is reelected, he could potentially be a convicted felon at that point. Uh, it's an entirely different scenario. Do we know if it's clear that he could pardon himself? I don't think there's a clear answer either way. My best guess is he can't pardon himself. If you look at the history of the pardon power, it is something that a sovereign bequeaths on one of its citizens. It's not something the sovereign would typically do to himself. It's something you give to someone else. You look at our nation's history, our traditions. My sense is that the founders did not envision when they gave the president the pardon power that he would use it to pardon himself because that would have the effect of putting the president above the law. Yeah, but then you look at the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court and... You, you could, but I think in this case, they would actually play it straight with the history. I think they would look at the history, the traditions. They would go back to the British common law, and they would make a call as to whether this is encompassed within the Constitution. Oh, very, very optimistic. You're very optimistic. <laughs> that that is man, how I see it, Tom Jake. Dupree, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Just in the last 36 hours, President Biden's son Hunter was indicted. Then this auto worker strike started as Biden touts himself as the most pro-union president in history. All this making his... Bid for re-election, which was already going to be difficult, that much more difficult. How political strategists see this political landscape, that's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In our 2024 lead, the United Auto Workers strike is a real test of merit for one 2024 presidential candidate. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is President Joe Biden. It's got all the hallmarks of his economic agenda, and this is all centered in Michigan, a must-win state if he wants to keep his job in 2024. Let's discuss with Karen Finney and Republican strategist uh, Rena Shah. So, Karen, yeah, um, you know, 58 percent of Americans uh, believe that Joe Biden's policies have made economic conditions worse. I know you disagree, um, but now we have a major strike by UAW in three different states, including Michigan. Uh, what possible moves does Biden have here politically? Well, I think we saw it earlier today, right, trying to both affirm some support for the strike, for the people who are striking, and their right to ask for better wages and better working conditions, particularly, you know, given that we saw during COVID, the disparities were laid so bare. And so, and you know, you listen to the strikers and they're talking about, look, they're getting 40% increases and we gave up our pension. So I think you saw the president kind of walking that balance. At the same time, I also think the president could do some tough talk behind the scenes because remember the American people, we bailed the auto industry out in 2008 and he was part of that deal. So I think he's got to do both. I mean, particularly given that this strike is fundamentally about the middle class in this country. Um, so I think he's got to continue to try to do both. He's you know, sending members of the administration out to try to help with the negotiations. I think it, this is a tough one for the president, obviously, because he can't control what happens. He can only try to you know, navigate around the edges. And Rena, the, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says the strike is Biden's fault. She writes, quote, the UAW strike and indeed the summer of strikes is the natural result of the Biden administration's whole-of-government approach to promoting unionization at all costs. Now, as, as Karen noted, Biden has no legal authority to intervene in this strike, uh, unlike strikes involving, for instance, the air traffic controllers or rail workers. He called on the big three automakers to go further What do you think are his options here as president? His options are limited because this is a true test of his leadership. And I think he's going to be defined by this in the many weeks to come. Uh, Though he, again, cannot put his hand directly in, there are people looking at this as the frustration that's there with the American worker in an industry that is pivotal. And so many people have short memories of 2008. But, you know, when you talk about this president and how he has seen so many of our greatest challenges through, I just don't know he has it in him to help quash this. And he can send out the surrogates and they can cite the data. And I see them do it from the White House podium, that everything is fine, guys. But we live in an era, as we all know, 
Politics is a feeling. And the feeling is that there are a lot of people in Detroit who are extremely frustrated and they don't see their lives getting better. And so that's what I see this election being about. And I don't hear the president able to make the case about how he's going to make my life better. But, you know, actually, I, I think the president is talking more about the lives of individual Americans far more than Trump or any of the Republicans are. And so and I think when voters have gone to the polls, 2020, 2022, just recently in Ohio, they have said it's about us and it's about our democracy. Mm -hmm. It's about our bodily autonomy. And that is what President Biden is speaking to. And I think we have to remember, I mean, look, nobody said the job was going to be easy from day one when they came into office. Don't for, not forget the middle of COVID. January 6th insurrection had just happened. And I think he and the vice president have very ably navigated all of these challenges. And actually, I look at the strike. This is a pivotal moment for our country. Mm -hmm. Because is. again, yes. this is it, this summer of strikes. This is about workers. This is about people saying we're tired of but it. But it's about trust too. Trust in the administration to do something. And do something bigger than again, what the Chamber of Commerce was saying. That whole of government approach. And that's what I take issue with here. But what is, is the problem with the whole of government I, I approach feel and saying, We've got to help people move forward in their lives, both in an economic context, in the But in there's the a smorgasbord of problems, and it feels like they are just trying to put out fires constantly, but not focused on anything particularly well, any one particular issue. And I agree with you. Democracy and how women fit in, our bodily autonomy, is going to be on the ballot next just, year. Let me ask you but a question. But that trust for me, for him to do right for these workers who are striking, I don't have it. So again, I but have much think less trust Trump for Trump is going to come Absolutely out there and be not. the... No, I so agree. So there you go. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about kind of the, the vestige of Trumpism in a, in a positive way is it does seem to me, and you tell me what you, what you hear from your Republican friends, but I have sensed more support among Republicans, and maybe I'm mistaken about this, but it seems to me more support among Republicans out there for the writers and the actors and even for the auto workers than I have in the past. Like it does seem like that sentiment of these rich fat cats are screwing us all, that's populism, and it's Bernie Sanders populism, but also in a way it's Donald Trump populism, I kind of sense it out there still, don't I you? I hear it. I hear it. And I'm going to be in L.A. later this month. And I'm going to connect with those people because, again, it's that grievance. It's the grievance politics which marked this era. And let's go further. Who is going to lift us out of this? It's not one person. It, could, it wasn't Trump. And it's not Biden. And so there's a real feeling of there's nobody for us. There's nobody representing us. It's these big companies just taking and taking. And that's where Republicans are stepping in. And, again, not making the most sensible case because it's like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. But you're right. Tapping on that feeling that there's a grievance here. And I think as we move forward into next year, Republicans are actually going to do better at capitalizing on that if they, grievance. Yeah, we've seen some, they, some things from like uh, Hawley and Rubio that are interesting on but this. But they have, I mean, they can't even get to a vote about the budget. So how are they right. going to help American workers? Good point. Sure. Thanks to both of you. Any moment now we could see a political earthquake shake in Texas. State senators are deciding right now whether or not to remove the Texas Attorney General from office. The impeachment accusations that led to this moment, that's next. Any moment now in our politics lead, 30 state senators will decide whether or not Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton should be impeached and removed from office. Paxton is a firebrand Republican, a staunch Trump ally. He's already suspended and faces 16 articles of impeachment, including bribery and abuse of office. A conviction on any of the counts would remove him from office. CNN's Ed Lavendera is at the Texas State Capitol in Austin, where an intense 10 days of testimony has led to deliberations happening right now. 
Ken Paxton skipped most of the impeachment trial, but the suspended attorney general was there for the final moments before 30 state senators started privately deliberating his political fate. Standing over him in the Senate gallery were several of his former senior staff members who blew the whistle on Paxton's alleged misconduct. So what is this case about? It's about nothing. It's about nothing. He has no regard for the principles of honor and integrity. He has betrayed us and the people of Texas. Paxton is accused of abusing his power as attorney general to help friend and campaign donor Nate Paul, a real estate developer under federal investigation at the time. Paul was arrested earlier this year by the FBI for financial crimes. Paxton is facing 16 articles of impeachment on charges of abusing his power, disregard of official duty, and bribery involving an alleged affair. Most of the testimony against Paxton during the impeachment trial came from eight whistleblowers who worked as senior staff in the AG's office. The conservative political appointees were fired or resigned after they took their concerns to the FBI. The laws were being abused. The behavior and the conduct of the Attorney General of Texas is outrageous. He abused the entire office of the Attorney General of Texas to benefit Nate Paul. And it got worse and worse and worse. Paxton's lawyers say the AG did nothing wrong, calling the case against Paxton hogwash and a joke. One lawyer called the prosecution's allegations dumber than a bucket of hair. All of this foolishness that they've accused this man of is false. But the only question I have in my mind is whether there is courage in this room to put this man back to work and vote not guilty. Ken Paxton is the most controversial politician in Texas, a close ally of Donald Trump. He's been elected attorney general three times, but his tenure has been shrouded in constant scandal. The Paxton impeachment trial has exposed a bitter divide among Texas Republicans. Extreme right-wing groups are threatening political retribution for lawmakers who vote to oust Paxton. But House impeachment managers urge senators to ignore the pressure. Sam Houston told Texans, do right and risk the consequences. Now is your time to do right. Jake, state senators have been deliberating since noon central time. Uh, if Paxton is uh, convicted of just one of the 16 articles of impeachment, he would be removed from office, and that means they need 21 of the 30 voting senators to do that. There are 12 Democrats, assuming they vote to convict. Nine Republicans would have to vote against Paxton for him to be removed from office. Jake. All right, Ed Levandera, thank you so much. Coming up next, the sister of Paul Whelan, one of the Americans wrongfully detained in Russia. She's met with President Biden before. The message she's getting after coming all the way to D.C. to meet with the president again. She'll join me here live in the studio. Stay with us. Topping our worldly today, the U.S. ambassador to Russia visiting two prisons this week. Each one holds what the State Department deems a wrongfully detained American citizen. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has been behind bars for nearly six months on trumped-up charges. Former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan for almost five years on similar trumped-up charges. Paul Whelan's sister Elizabeth uh, joins us now here in studio. And Elizabeth, thank, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We always try to keep a, a light on uh, your brother's uh, case. You requested a meeting with President Biden this week. Um, you didn't get it, but you did meet with members of Congress, the State Department, White House officials this week. Do you feel any more hopeful... Uh, for your brother's release after the meetings? Well, uh, you know, I try to keep a sense of hope all the time. Um, 
My concern has been that, uh, you know, this entire effort to get Paul home has been moving at a glacial speed, you know, the speed of bureaucracy, not the speed of hostage taking. And so, uh, you know, during the almost five years that Paul's been held, we've seen two other people be arrested and released. And so I feel the need to come down here and make sure that everything is being done uh, to, to make sure that Paul will be coming home in the near future as well. Yeah. Do you think it helps or hurts Paul's case that Evan Gershkovich is also detained in Russia, also giving, uh, getting uh, media coverage? Oh, I don't think it hurts. I think it's um, actually helpful because it helps uh, people around the world, not just in, in America, understand the, the vile nature of state-sponsored hostage-taking. Uh, I think it's shed a really good light on the subject. You told my colleague Aaron Burnett this week that you were relieved when you saw the, the video of Paul. Um, first video of him in years uh, from inside the prison saying he, Larry is, uh, looks like himself, you said. Uh, that was, of course, Russian propaganda to a degree. Um, but uh, he does look good, and he did sound good. Uh, is there anything you've heard about his treatment inside the prison that particularly concerns you? Well, he has had uh, retaliation against him over time. You know, he's been put in solitary every now and again. Uh, it, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. We really won't know what Paul has been experiencing until he's out. Because even though he can, com can communicate to my parents in small phone calls during the week in the embassy, of course the guards are listening to him. So, so I'm not sure that we'll know the full story. Your brother uh, David says the U.S. Embassy tr staff tried to hand deliver mail and a package to Paul, but the Russian prison staff did not let him uh, receive it. Your brother cites, quote, Russian bureaucracy. Um, do you know roughly like what percentage of letters or supplies that are sent to Paul that actually he gets? You know, um, we're not exactly sure, but we know these kinds of retaliations are not about Paul. They're a retaliation against the United States, against the, uh, you know, the U.S. Embassy. Um, but here's an example. Paul has been getting mail, uh, 200 or 300 pieces at a time, from a, uh, a large delivery made in January. That was the mail that came from uh, Brittany Griner asking her supporters um, to, to mm -hmm. write to Paul, and then people who were mad about Brittany Griner coming home also writing to Paul. So Paul is getting Christmas cards and things right now um, from back in December and January. So they string out uh, how long it takes for him to get things. Who knows why they denied accepting the mail this time. So you couldn't uh, meet with President Biden during your trip this week, but he has been known to, on occasion, uh, watch this show. Um, if you want to look at the camera and, and address him, uh, go ahead. Uh, in which direction? We're, we're look at this camera right here, right here, this one okay. right here. Um, I would say this is not just to the president, but this is to everybody involved in the entire effort to bring Paul home. You know what he's going through. You know he's in a prison camp every single day. You know, any call, any contact, any connection, uh, anything that you can do to end this ordeal, please do it soon. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Whelan. Always good to have you. We're going to continue to shine a light on your brother's ordeal. Thank you very much. In our national lead, a commemoration and a warning. 60 years ago, September 15, 1963, an explosion tore through the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. An FBI investigation later discovered four Ku Klux Klan members planted dynamite under a staircase. The blast injured nearly two dozen people and infamously killed four young girls. 11-year-old Denise McNair, as well as three 14-year-olds, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, Addie Mae Collins. Supreme Court Associate Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson 
spoke at today's commemoration ceremony, sounding a warning against efforts to water down what we teach our children. If we're going to continue to move forward as a nation, we cannot allow concerns about discomfort to displace knowledge, truth, or history. We must not shield our eyes. We must not shrink away lest we lose it all. Sixty years after ignorance and prejudice and hatred led to violence in Birmingham, Justice Jackson asked, can we really say that we are not confronting the same evils now? A large rally is just getting started in Detroit in support of auto workers on strike. You're looking at live images of the crowd. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, is set to come to the mic. The message to workers as the union prepares to go back to bargaining with the big three automakers tomorrow. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Pentagon has announced that they are going to revisit the Kabul airport bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members during the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan more than two years ago. Whom are officials planning to interview and whom are they not talking to? Plus, a wall of water washed away an entire city in Libya. Days later, thousands are dead, thousands more are missing. CNN is the first network to reach the devastated city of Derna the epicenter of the floods. And leading this hour, an unprecedented strike that could cripple the U.S. auto industry. Workers with the United Auto Workers Union are striking against the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, the company that owns Chrysler, Jeep, and Dodge. Right now, workers have walked off the job at three plants in three different states. At any moment, the UAW is going to hold a rally in Detroit, Michigan, where Senator Bernie Sanders will be a guest speaker. Our coverage Starts with CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz, who's at the United Auto Workers Rally in Detroit, Michigan. Vanessa, what's the mood there among the auto workers? Well, we have several hundred UAW members here and supporters who are waiting to hear from UAW President Sean Fain and Bernie Sanders. The folks that I have spoken to said they feel a sense of solidarity today. They believe in the union's work. They believe in the union's demands. You have people who came from the picket lines to be here. You have people who came from inside factories. I met a busload of people who traveled all the way in from the Ford plants out in Kentucky. I also asked them how they were feeling about negotiations. They said that they are so happy to hear that the automakers and the union are getting back to the table tomorrow because ultimately they want a deal too. They are also very encouraged that President Biden announced that he is sending senior advisor Gene Sperling and Labor Secretary Julie Sue to come to Detroit to try to help out with negotiations. They think that move only helps the situation. Now, the plan is to hear from speakers 
on stage today. And then this group of hundreds of UAW members are going to walk a few blocks down the street to GM's headquarters, rally outside those offices, and then make their way back here. But in just moments, Sean Fain, Bernie Sanders, and Governor Gretchen Whitmer are going to be taking the stage, and people here are very excited to hear what they have to say. Jake? So, Vanessa, so far, the CEOs of the automakers seem to be scoffing at the demands of workers, including a 40% pay increase over four years, four-day work week, and the like. Are you hearing from workers that they believe they can ultimately achieve their demands? They do. They say that they trust their bargaining committee. I asked them what they thought of the big three automakers' recent proposals, and in their words, they said that the proposals were BS. So clearly, they believe that they deserve the 40% in pay increases, which in some ways are in line with what the CEOs of these major corporations are making. And they have total trust in Sean Fain, in the union, to get them there, Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I want to turn now to UAW Local 12 President Bruce Baumhauer. He oversees all 5,800 workers who are striking in Toledo, Ohio today at the Stellantis plant. Bruce, I want to start with what Ford CEO Jim Farley told us on the lead about workers' demand, specifically the 40% pay increase. Take a look. Listen. 40% will put us out of business. We would lose $15 billion. We would have to cut people, close plants. What's the good of that? It's not a sustainable business. What's your response? <laughs> well, I think about the, not only Jim Farley, but Carlos Tavares and Mary Barra and their 40% bonuses that they got. Mary, Mary's now at $29 million a year. Um, and I think that's probably where Sean got that number to throw that 40% out. I don't know what it would be when we get done. It would it, it, probably be less than 40%, but it'll be, it, it needs to be substantial. Can you tell us where the state of negotiations stand right now between the workers and the CEOs of GM, Ford, and Stellantis? Well, I'm glad to hear that they're coming back to talk again. Um, I think we're on solid ground here. Uh, you know, I keep reading the, the polls that say that 74% of Americans agree with us. And I think the reason they agree with us is we were there through the bankruptcy in 2000, late 2008, early 2009. We did everything. Barack Obama, uh, when he took over and, and offered to, to bail out money to the companies, he met with us. And he said, you guys are going to have to take, uh, share some pain in this. And we did. Uh, an example I will share with you is uh, starting pay at, at the Chrysler plant is, is $15.78 an hour coming out of bankruptcy. And here we are 14 years later, it's still $15.78 an hour. So that's ridiculous. They tell you about the $32 guy that's a longevity guy. But one third of our plan is in that $15 range. So these go, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, but right now, there are only strikes at, at three plants, uh, including yours. Um, this is obviously just a beginning. Assuming there isn't any serious progress over the weekend, is there a schedule for, for more plants? I mean, how many plants are going to have walkouts on, on Monday or by this time next week? Sean's uh, kept that close to the vest. He has told us that uh, he will escalate this if he has to. I think he I think he hit a home run when he picked those three plants. Our plant in Toledo is Chrysler's crown jewel of the corporation. Uh, the Ford plant and the GM plant are SUVs and, and crossovers and, and small trucks. That's what's selling. So I think I think they hit him hard in, in the in the right spot. I think that was 
a, a great a great suggestion. And so I'm thinking that's why we're going to, you know, why they're anxious to get back to the table and try to work through this. And I'm confident we'll get an agreement. How are your workers doing? Uh, do you see the strike continuing for a while? I, you know, I'm hoping not. Uh, we had a um, uh, we were out there last night and when they walked off the, off the picket line, uh, we met with every one of them and uh, they were here today to sign up for strike pay. Our, our strike pay in our union historically was two hundred dollars a, a week. It's now five hundred based on our recent convention last year. And all day today, we had fifty six hundred of them here signing up for strike pay. And I didn't have one negative comment from anybody. Everybody thinks that we're we're, we're doing the right thing. And and, uh, and I believe we are. Right. But, you know, it's day one. I mean, day 50 might yeah. be different. Right. I agree. And I'm hoping that that because Sean picked those three plans, that that escalates things. The UAW, those three plans are all. The UAW has about eight hundred and twenty five million dollars in the bank uh, to pay auto workers on strike. Um, and, and obviously, by starting the strike off small, the UAW is hoping to make the fun last. Do, do you have any idea how long the UAW can afford to have workers uh, on strike just in terms of the, stri- the strike pay? Well, I, I, I do not have that, but the, the number that I have uh, heard from official people is that if we, if, we, if we took the whole country out, if we took all of our 170,000 members out, we'd run out of money in about seven or eight weeks. So th- that's another reason for the, that why their strategy, I think, is a, is a smart one. What um what can you tell me about this request for a, a four day work week? Um, I I think most Americans watching can understand the desire uh, to have uh, an increase in pay. Certainly, as your CEOs uh, experience a forty percent increase in pay themselves over the last few years. But w- what's with this four day work week? Yeah, you know, Sean's Sean's made that proposal, and, and I don't know. We've done a lot of contracts. I've been I've been in the UAW for 51 years now. I've been the president of this local for 31 of those years. And we we kind of, we negotiate with 42 different companies in Northwest Ohio. So sometimes we've had our proposals. We'll put something on there that, that we know we can modify or, or, or get rid of if it takes it to get an agreement. I don't know if that's one of those or not, but uh, I trust Sean Fain. I think he's done a great job. Um, but, comprom- you know, every, every contract ends up in some kind of compromise. This one will, too, for both parties. And, and where that fits into that, we'll see. And how is the strike in, in your area impacting other businesses and other plants in the community? If, if, if you have seen that effect as of now, I realize it's Big. only day one. Yeah, first, I've seen that firsthand. And, and Local 12 is what we call an amalgamated local. So we have contracts with 42 area companies. Uh, 12 of them uh, are shut down right now because of Jeep being shut down. We have companies that make our seats, companies that, that put our tires on the rim, uh, companies that make our instrument panels. We have companies who, who do our frame uh, construction. So all of those plants that I represent in Local 12 are dark today because of this. So our, those people, fortunately, will be able to go on unemployment. But uh, it, it is difficult to have that, that many of our companies shut down. All right, UAW Local 12 President uh, Bruce Baumhauer, wishing you the best of luck. Hope the strike is over quickly. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, sir. Trying to out anti-Fauci each other, the new campaign trail fight between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Plus, after growing pressure, the Pentagon now says it is re-examining the deadly bombing at the Kabul airport during the botched American withdrawal. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, two Florida men 
are fighting over which one of them is more anti-Anthony Fauci. Now, those Florida men just happen to be the Republican frontrunners for President of the United States. Take a listen. You actually gave him a presidential commendation before you left office. Wouldn't you like a do-over on that? Uh, I don't know who gave him the commendation. I really don't know who gave him the commendation. Was that the immaculate commendation that just happened to happen? It said Donald Trump awards Fauci this commendation. So I thought it was really pathetic to, to sit there and listen to that drivel. The immaculate commendation. <laughs> now former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are up north with dueling appearances in D.C. before two separate conservative gatherings. CNN's Kristen Holmes and Jessica Dean are following this closely. So Jessica DeSantis yeah. already spoke at the Concerned Women for America Summit, clearly speaking to conservative women, according to the female vote. What other groups is he trying to court? Well, we know based on this audio that CNN obtained a couple of weeks ago that Never Back Down, the super PAC that's supporting him, said that kind of this target audience is someone with who's educated, who attends church regularly, who reads the Bible, um, who has a higher income, that that's really a target DeSantis audience. However, to go back to the evangelicals for a second, there's a very good reason why we see him going back to the well with that group of voters over and over again. It's because that's where they really see a weakness, uh, potentially for people who supported Donald Trump in the last two elections, that they think they can kind of start to bring those people over to their sides. In fact, when he launched his campaign in Iowa, uh, that's where he was. He was at an evangelical church, and we've seen him go back to that again and again. And they're hoping that he can really be that viable Trump alternative for people who like Trump's policies, but maybe are wary of the man and, and all of the chaos that continues to around him. So and I'll let porn you... stars. Don't forget the porn stars. Well, yes, we could, we could, we could lump in the porn stars with the chaos. Uh, but here's a little bit of what he said today, just to give you a sample. They will tolerate our faith as long as it doesn't impact their agenda. The minute there's a conflict, they expect believers to bend the knee. I can tell you in Florida that is not acceptable. When I become president in the United States, that is not going to become acceptable. So again, that's a lot of what we've heard him when he's in front of these specific types of audiences. He goes back to, again, what he's done in Florida. He likes to talk about his record there. And, and they believe that these types of voters could be very pivotal for them, especially in an early state. Like Iowa. Like Iowa. Right. Uh, and, and Kristen Trump's going to speak at the exact same event as well. Uh, what do we expect his pitch to be? Well, so earlier this week, he released a new policy video in which he essentially is saying that he would be a champion for people who homeschool their children. So we expect him to talk about that. That's really what he has been doing at these kind of events, talking to parents, advocating for parents' rights. He knows that this is a flashpoint politically, particularly when it comes to the religious right. But I do want to touch on one thing that Jessica said, because I think it's very interesting. You know, it's not just the evangelicals. It's also women Mm -hmm. and women evangelicals in particular. And, you know, you make the joke about the porn star. And this was something that... Actually, Trump overcame in 2016 sure did. in part because of picking Mike Pence for vice president, because he needed that evangelical voice. He doesn't have that this time around. And obviously, he is drowning in legal issues. Uh, that is going to continue. It's going to continue on the campaign trail when he's intermingling them with trials. Can he actually get the evangelical vote? There's, you know, Mostly polls are showing us that they still support him in mass numbers, uh, but also women, women mm-hmm. in particular, who they are slightly concerned about that. And and Jessica, back to that anti-Fauci debate, Trump also claimed that Florida under DeSantis' leadership, quote, sort of 
uh, had a vaccine mandate, but I, I don't think that's true. No, and, and you covered all of that every single day when, when COVID was happening. And, and I think we all recall that Florida, of course, stood apart in what it was doing. And the governor is very pointed in his comments about that. He goes back to it over and over again. But the facts are that he never imposed a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Now, he did at times talk about how people who were vaccinated would do better in the hospital, that it, you had a lower mortality rate. But he was very clear over and over again from the beginning, and then his language has shifted even more right. over time, that, that it should be someone's choice. So there was never a mandate in Florida. And in fact, he banned businesses from, from saying that you had to be vaccinated to come inside to the businesses in Florida. Well, I do want to, can I add one thing about this? Because sure. I think it's really fascinating. When that interview, mm -hmm. when he was talking about that with Megyn Kelly, Megyn Kelly specifically said multiple times during that interview, this is the number one question, talking about the vaccine, talking about Anthony Fauci, mm -hmm. that my viewers, my listeners want to know about. The reason why I find that so fascinating is because that is the thing that Donald Trump is the most concerned about, is that reaction to COVID. They know that it's a weakness for him, particularly when it comes to Ron DeSantis because of the way that was laid out. And it's interesting to see that there is still so many people, there are still so many people who are writing into Megyn Kelly and saying, this is what we need him to answer for. And you know that. For sure. And you saw Ron DeSantis' the, the uh, immaculate commendation. Yeah. He was really kind of tickled by it. Like, they lean very into this. And yeah. they really feel like that's, that's a good point. A Great good job, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Kristen Holmes, Jessica Dean. CNN is the first network to reach the town of Derna after it was washed away by a wall of water. What is happening on the ground as search teams search for thousands who are still missing? Stay with us. We're back with our worldly than the unthinkable devastation in northeast Libya. Volunteers in the coastal town of Derna continuing to retrieve dead bodies washing up along the shore. Those victims swept out to sea by an enormous wall of water after flash floods on Sunday caused dams to break. The floods caused by a major storm that had previously hit Europe before going through the Mediterranean Sea. More than 5,000 are estimated dead and at least 10,000 remain missing. Before and after satellite images show where neighborhoods and roads once stood, now replaced with a graveyard coated in debris and mud. CNN was the first U.S. network to reach the town of Derna, and that's where we find CNN's Jamana Karache. It's a scene of utter devastation here. Everywhere you turn, it's apocalyptic scenes here. It resembles a war zone. Many cities across the Libyan coast were impacted by that storm, but what happened in Derna was so different. This catastrophe, as people describe it here, was of course caused by those two dams that burst, unleashed all that water, the floods that swept through this city and destroyed pretty much everything in its path, washing out entire neighborhoods, entire buildings, infrastructure, families that ended up in the sea. And you speak to people here, survivors, who describe a night of horror that they went through. All this destruction, all this human loss, the thousands of lives that were lost, the more than 10,000 people who are unaccounted for right now, they say this all happened within the span of about 90 minutes. We've spoken to some survivors describing how they had to uh, race to save their lives, their children grabbing what they can, their children and running and trying to escape the rising waters that just kept on rising three story high. Uh, we heard that the waves uh, were up to about 22 feet 
and those who survived it are just traumatized. You speak to people right now who are barely able to comprehend what happened to them, what happened to their city. People are in shock. And Libyans tell you they have seen everything. They have dealt with war. They've seen death. They have dealt with loss before, but nothing prepared them for this. And right now, from what we have seen, they don't have the capabilities to deal with a disaster on this scale. There are some search and rescue teams that have come in from different countries, but they say that this is nowhere near enough. They need more. We have seen so many volunteers here in this bitterly divided country, a country where city fought city. East has been fighting West for more than a decade now. We have seen people from all across the country who have poured into Dedna, who have poured into the east to try and support the people, to help volunteers, search and rescue, uh, trying to uh, help retrieve the dead bodies. In the words of one woman we spoke to earlier saying, this catastrophe has united the people of Libya, and it seems like it has, at least for now. Jamana Karache, CNN, Dedna, Libya. Jamana Karache, thank you for that report. Also on our world lead today, the Biden administration imposed new sanctions today on more than two dozen Iranian officials and entities tied to the regime's violent suppression of protests in that country. This comes on the eve of the one-year anniversary of Masajina Amini's death, the young Kurdish Iranian woman who died while in custody of Iran's so-called morality police, arrested because she supposedly wore her hijab incorrectly, showing too much of her hair. Her death sparked nationwide protests and outrage against the Iranian regime. That defiance still carries on today, despite the constant, brutal crackdown aimed to silence the courage of these protesters. CNN's chief international anchor, Christiana Mampour, joins us now. Christiana, you grew up in Tehran. What do you make of how Tehran and elsewhere in Iran has changed a year after Amini's death? Well, Jake, I have been talking to a lot of people in the last few days and weeks and certainly in the last year since uh, Amini's death and since those protests. And what I'm hearing now is that there has been a... I mean, some people say, in a, in a way, the women there have won. And the reason I say this is because they, at least in Tehran and the big cities, are now able to and are leaving their homes without their hijabs on, are mixing with members of the opposite sex in, in, you know, in, in restaurants and other such places. And there are all sorts of reports and eyewitness accounts of women who say, yeah, they have to screw their courage to the mast as they leave their homes without their hijabs. And sometimes they get abused and heckled and maybe harassed, but they basically tell those people to, you know, to go, to go, to go, you know, do whatever themselves. And they are continuing to be able to go out without this hijab. Having said that, the regime is trying to preempt any, uh, you know, demonstrations and, and protests over this anniversary. So it is cracking down on activists, journalists and others. Um, it is doing that kind of stuff right now. But this, we're told, was never in the current circumstances going to be what many in the West envisioned, like a, another revolution. It was women protesting for their rights alongside their male allies. And to an extent, within the parameters of that very authoritarian regime, they have won at least a battle. There's a huge, huge you know, war to continue fighting for their rights. Speaking of a different kind of war, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is going to meet with President Biden next week as Zelensky pushes for more funding needed to continue 
uh, defending uh, Ukraine against Russia's invasion. That meeting will either be in New York at the U.N. General Assembly or in D.C., uh, where Zelensky is scheduled to meet with members of Congress. Uh, how worried is Ukraine that they're losing Western support in this war? Well, look, I think they're constantly looking at um, the reports of, you know, how politics are going in the U.S. mostly, by the way. And you keep seeing now these uh, polls saying that potentially, you know, it's getting much closer. Maybe a slight majority are tired of putting all this support towards Ukraine. But in general, the coalition and the uh, alliance is holding. And in general, Zelensky has been very effective and his people and obviously those who are fighting the war in galvanizing sentiment towards them and particularly pointing out how important it is not to let Russia win this. You also have uh, new reporting, fascinating stuff about this Ukrainian ballet company and its efforts to fight the war on on the cultural front as Russia's trying to annihilate Ukraine in every way. This is going to air Sunday on the whole story with Anderson Cooper. Let's uh, run a little clip from that. Do you feel that you are doing your bit to protect your country and to tell the world about your country by dancing, by having left, by not being on the front line? I'm trying, I'm trying. All our company try to represent our country, that people will fall in love in our country and in our people. I think we want to, in a good way, with a soft weapon, we want to remind people that we still need help. Please don't forget about it. How are their messages being received, Christian? Uh, really well. They went to the Kennedy Center. They had a great reception. And around the world, they've had engagements. But you'll hear in this hour more of them here in, in, you know, out of Ukraine. You'll hear the ballet dancers I spoke to in Ukraine, why they stayed, why some of them even went to the front line. So it's, you know, it's a beautiful, different slice of life from a country in war that's trying to, you know, really protect its own culture, its identity, its history in the face of Russia, trying to tell the world that there is no Ukraine. There's no Ukrainian identity, and that's why Russia wants it to be part of it. Well, well, it's good stuff. Uh, Everyone tune in on an all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One whole hour, one whole story airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN. Christiana Mimpour, thank you so much. Appreciate it, as always. Coming up, new questions about who the Pentagon is interviewing about the deadly Kabul airport bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members. That's next. In our world, it's been more than two years since the Abbey Gate bombing that killed 13 U.S. troops and at least 170 Afghan civilians. 45 U.S. service members were wounded. It was the deadliest day for U.S. troops in roughly a decade in Afghanistan. And today, the Pentagon announced it is going to interview 19 additional service members who were firsthand witnesses to the bombing, but for some reason were not consulted for the Pentagon's initial investigation. This news comes amid an ongoing push from Gold Star families and witnesses who cast doubt on the Pentagon's assessment that the attack was not preventable. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh has been following the story from the beginning. Nick, what is the main focus of these new interviews? 
is to ensure that some of the people who were essentially out of reach when the first investigations were done, U.S. service personnel who were injured essentially have their full story heard by an official investigation. They have been heard in the media, certainly, uh, and one particular individual who suffered horrific injuries as a result of the blast, uh, Tyler Vargas Andrews, essentially has said he thinks he saw the bomber and was denied, as a sniper, permission to engage him and therefore could, he thinks, have prevented the blast. It, testimony is not uniform. There's lots of confusing, conflicting reports about who saw what. I've been shown uh, an image by somebody who was there of who they thought the bomber may have been or somebody associated with the bomber. Uh, but essentially, we're dealing with one of the most tragic episodes of the loss of US and Afghan life in certainly decades, amongst which there are extraordinary unanswered questions. The initial Pentagon investigation leaving so many individuals unsatisfied, uh, essentially saying that many of the people whose testimony were presented in documents released by the Freedom of Information Act may have been confused because of brain trauma, leaving those who survived uh, deeply angry at the official version of events and many Afghans uh, who lost relatives there or survived uh, furious, frankly, at what they see as the misrepresentation of what they saw, Jake. And we know this is only part of the story. Of course, the Pentagon's investigation had, had big holes. You at the time reported on dozens of Afghans shot after the bomb. Yeah, look, I mean, the original investigation didn't have holes. It just didn't really make any sense at all. There were, uh, in documents, interviews with U.S. personnel who admitted running out into the aftermath of the blast and opening fire into a smoky area and not quite knowing what they were hitting. There were U.S. personnel saying shells, uh, bullets were landing around them. There was clearly, in the evidence presented by U.S. personnel, a lot of gunfire after that blast. And we spoke to dozens of Afghans who were the relatives of or survivors of what they saw uh, were gunshot injuries there. There were 19 people who saw individuals shot or were shot themselves. There were 14 cases where we had documents where individuals were shot or indicated gunfire. And there were staff at five separate hospitals in Kabul who treated gunfire. But the US and the UK, who also had personnel there as well, say that no, the only people there firing were their personnel and they didn't hit anybody at all. And in fact, all of these injuries and all of those accounts of people seeing gunfire amongst their own personnel were mistaken, result of brain trauma, or the injuries that were seen were in fact the result of the explosion itself, whose ball bearings, the shrapnel that the bomb detonated, were very similar in size to bullet wounds. A huge amount of holes here that need to be further investigated, and we are learning from CENTCOM today that in fact they will interview those 19 US military personnel, but they're also holding out the possibility they may have to interview more individuals too, and that could include Afghan civilians as well. At this point, they've interviewed zero. Jake? Yeah, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. With us now to discuss, Republican Congressman uh, Mike Waltz of Florida. Thanks for being here. You're a combat decorated Green Beret, a retired colonel in the National Guard. Uh, what's your reaction to the Pentagon basically reopening this investigation of what happened? Well, Jake, we have to give a lot of credit, frankly, to the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the investigation uh, that we've led the hearings that we've had in Congress since we've taken the the majority. We yeah, had Chairman Michael McCall with yeah. Chairman Michael McCall and and his team. Absolutely, we've had uh, the sniper uh, uh, Marine Corps Corporal uh, Vargas uh, Tyler Vargas that was on Abbey Gate that has testified that he had the sniper uh, in his sights and was denied permission to take the shot. We now know uh, through various documents that. 
There were other attempts to try to strike the suicide bomber as he made his way there in the days before. Unclear why those uh, those attempted strikes were denied. Uh, so there's there's a lot that we have uncovered. Uh, and then finally, we have the Gold Star families. Uh, and the Gold Star families were told one thing. I think it was a real mistake on the Pentagon's part to not send the Abbeygate investigators to brief the families. Instead, they sent some attorneys, colonels. I'm not sure who they sent. They got conflicting stories. Mm-hmm. They're very upset. They don't have closure. Uh, I I think we've pushed the Pentagon to reopen this. I'm not sure that they would have without this push from Congress and the Gold Star families, but I'm glad they're doing it. So, I mean, I think it's the very least that we owe the Gold Star families is just a thorough accounting of what happened. And and I don't, <laughs> yeah. what, you, you, you're a veteran, so you explain to me, why wouldn't there be one? That's right. I mean, why don't we have these Gold Star families into the Pentagon with everybody that we can possibly get there and we close the door and nobody leaves until they're done asking questions? Uh, until they have closure on exactly what happened. And then we'll continue to unpack in terms of accountability, the lack of planning, whether they should have been in Kabul airport in the first place versus Bagram or what have you. But the least we owe those Gold Star families is exactly how their loved ones died, what their final moments were, get them their personal effects, and get your story straight when it comes to dealing with those moms. 100%. Two other big issues I want to touch on with you before uh, I let you go home for the weekend. Um, uh, the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The other sure. night you told my CNN colleague, Caitlin Collins, that the evidence is overwhelming. My mind is open, but yeah. evidence of what and, and evidence against whom? Well, first, we have uh, a series of complaints, both in email, text and otherwise, mm-hmm. from Hunter Biden complaining to his daughter about sharing the money that he's making and having to share half of it with his dad. Uh, we have other complaints from Hunter to other family members Uh, about paying his father's bills. Uh, We know now that, uh, for example, uh, he received money from a Russian oligarch, Hunter did. That Russian oligarch post-Ukraine is not on the sanctions list. I think that's a valid uh, question of why. And we now know from Hunter, uh, uh, from Devin Archer, Hunter's business partner, Mm -hmm. that despite President Biden's claims of never having talked to his son about any of these dealings. We now know that was a lie that he was on, according to this testimony, multiple phone calls, had dinner with them. uh, And the question is, did he change policy as both vice president or now as a result of it? We also have an interview from the prosecutor that Vice President Biden pushed the the government uh, to, to fire that he was pushed because he was digging into Burisma and the corruption there. He had frozen their assets. Yeah. And we know from a board meeting and testimony now, I mean, you asked what we know. But you, you need the rest of the hour to know what but, we but know. And a, these ties to yeah. the father. I mean, bottom line, Jake, did he change policy when he was vice president? Did he profit? Did he pay taxes? And is he changing policy now but, as a result of this? There's a, a lot to unpack because there's a lot of context that you're not including. Look, if, if there's evidence of wrongdoing by Joe Biden, show it, bring it. I don't care. But but I haven't seen anything. Ken Buck was here and said that he hadn't seen any evidence that Joe Biden had personally financially benefited. And in fact, uh, as you know, but, Speaker McCarthy was going to bring this up for a floor vote. Yeah. And I asked Ken Buck, why didn't he? Bring it up for a floor vote. Here is what your conservative colleague, uh, Congressman Ken Buck, had to say. 
Oh, he knew it wouldn't pass. There were, there were probably more than 20 Republican votes that, that would not have been in favor of this. So, I mean, again, there has yeah. been an investigation to a lot of this. The firing of Victor Shokin, the entire Western world wanted to do. Um, I don't doubt that Hunter Biden has been, you know, unethical and sleazy. I just, where is the evidence that President Biden got any of this money? But, but Jake, you're acting as though we introduced articles this week. We didn't introduce articles of impeachment. We introduced, we started an inquiry, which the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service and the court system as an upheld precedent gives us greater standing in two regards. One, it penetrates claims of executive privilege. So when we have, for example, emails sitting at the National Archives that could be claimed as executive privilege, the courts are saying this, this inquiry would trump that. Uh, and then number two, when we conduct normal oversight, as we've been conducting and uncovered all of this, that has to further a legislative purpose. Now with an inquiry that is set aside, we can actually ask for things like bank records. Who are these 20 LLCs uh, registered to? Who was profiting from them? Where, whose bills were paid? Were the president's bills paid as Hunter was complaining about? All of those things will be uncovered from the inquiry. Impeachment's not a foregone conclusion. But I think with just what I laid out, and I could lay out more, it's reasonable that we ask those questions. Well, I mean, Chairman Comer has been asking the questions, and there hasn't been any smoking guns about President Biden. That's why you couldn't get those 20 Republicans. That's why Speaker McCarthy couldn't get those 20 Republicans to vote for an inquiry. We're going to move forward responsibly. We're going to seek the facts. But I don't think, I think anybody looks at this and says, there's a lot of smoke here. This stinks. And when the president's repeatedly lied about it, including saying his son didn't receive anything from China, didn't profit from China. But then when he's under oath, when Hunter's under Hunter's oath under, in court, yeah, he, he receives three and a half million. Sure. And he traveled there repeatedly on official business with his father. And his father was charged by President Obama with with policy responsibility from China. Look, we've got to look into this and we've got to get to the bottom of it. And I think that's what the American people expect of us. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. In our national lead, the writers and actors strike that has ground Hollywood production to a halt for months drags on. The actor union, SAG-AFTRA, joined the Writers Guild of America strike in July and many of the same issues that drove writers to strike are also shared by actors. The demand for a fair working wage and job protections as streaming has upended the entertainment industry. And joining me now to discuss is two-time Tony and six-time Emmy Award-winning actor Brian Cranston, a friend of the show, I think it's fair to say. Brian, thanks for joining us. Um, Are you encouraged at all that major studios are set to resume talks with the Writers Guild? And where do talks stand uh, with SAG after the Actors Guild? And and do actors want a seat at that table? Oh, we certainly do. Uh, thanks for having me, Jake. Good to see you again. Um, the writers have been out for almost or around four months, the actors for two. Uh, it's always a good sign when you're invited to to get back to the negotiating table. As far as the after SAG end of it, we've been asking the AMPTP to be a part of these negotiations and to come back to the table, and thus far they have uh, refused to accept that invitation. Um, we, we try not to be pessimistic about that. Uh, our sister union, uh, Writers Guild of America, they are uh, going back apparently next week, and it's hopeful. 
I mean, anytime you're actually sitting at the table, something can happen. If you're not talking, nothing can happen. Yeah. Both the writers and the actors unions have visually been united, as demonstrated by a large joint rally in Los Angeles Wednesday. Do you think that unity is going to hold if, if one side reaches an agreement before the other? I hope it does. I, uh, we, we are so related in, in our storytelling uh, uh, capacity that it, it, it does behoove us and helps each other uh, to stay united. I hope that we do. Um, we have uh, s- some slight different issues uh, than the Writers Guild have, but for the most part, uh, I would say 75, 80% of their issues are also our issues as well. A lot of that has to do with how st- streaming has upended uh, the, the business model on which so many careers uh, and lifestyles uh, were, were built, uh, the industry was built. Um, let me play this clip. This hopefully uh, can help us uh, and our audience understand some of this. This is from your friend and fellow Breaking Bad co-star, actor Aaron, Ball, uh, Aaron Paul. Take a listen. Uh, shows uh, live, live forever on these streamers, and it goes through waves, you know. Um, and I mean, I just saw just the other day that Breaking Bad was trending on Netflix. I mean, it's just it's such common sense, and I think a lot of these streamers they know that they have been getting away with not paying people uh, just fair wage, and now it's time to to pony up. So it might be tough for people to understand. Breaking Bad is airing on Netflix. It was originally on AMC. Now it's on Netflix. And actors aren't getting paid for it? Well, there, if you literally, figuratively, uh, you are getting paid. But the scale is so far below what we're used to. There used to be several different revenue streams for a working actor to coddle together to actually make a living. And you needed all of them to be able to do that. Well, those have been whisked away. And um, what was called new media years ago, now uh, the streaming market, we know what it is. And we know that all the legacy studios have switched their entire business model to become part of that uh, contest, to be a leader in the streaming wars. And it has created a situation where the AMPTP is taking an old and outmodeled business model and coming up with their uh, contract offers according to that. Well, everything has changed. This business has changed uh, demonstrably. So we need to look at what are the new situations that we're dealing with? What are the new rules that we're playing by? and come up with uh, new agreements that, that uh, answer to that. There's also the simple fact that about five weeks ago, the New York Times did an expose on the, um, the rents in Los Angeles from 2000 to 2023. Uh, and they showed that rents in Los Angeles went up 35% on average. At the same time, the an increase in pay went up only 6%. So it doesn't take a mathematician to realize that inflation has had a tremendous effect on the working actor. Yeah, and I know one of the other big sticking points is, for instance, on Netflix, you don't even know how many people are watching because Netflix does not share the data. That is one of the big sticking points for the writers 
and the actors let you know because the, the ratings used to be the way that that the right. networks would let uh, people know you, it was all public, and that that information is now being guarded. Uh, That's true. In, in an unbelievable way, Brian Cranston, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, we Jake. all hope that this strike ends soon uh, and that living wages are, are paid. Thank you. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, we'll have former Vice President and Republican presidential candidate Mike Pence, plus Senator Bernie Sanders, who just made an appearance at that rally for striking auto workers that Sunday at 9 and noon Eastern, only on CNN. New developments just in from the Ford Motor Company related to the auto workers' strike. That's coming up next on The Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.